displaced friend. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your tenderness. Thank you for your word. And thank you for this slow reconciliation that helps us to understand the depth of our sin, the greatness of your grace, the beauty of Jesus Christ. Show him to us today, we ask in his name. Amen. In our closing hymn last week, our closing hymn was stricken, smitten, and afflicted. And there is a great line in that hymn, and and I'm sure you remember it from either last time singing it or other times. It says, Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Now, the writer is not uh, saying here, as in Exodus 32 through 34, he is rather referencing the cross of Jesus Christ. And he says, for any of you who are tempted to think that sin is no big deal or to take sin lightly, look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Look at what was paid to deal with your sin and get a sense from that of how great exactly your sin is. Sometimes we are tempted to think that sin is no big deal. Other people, sometimes, and us other times, see sin as a big deal. It's not a matter to be taken lightly, but we at the same time see God as patient and as forgiving, and so I don't need to spend a lot of time being overly concerned with my sin. I can perhaps not presume, but I can assume on the grace of God. And still others develop a scale for sin by which you compare yourself with other people. So perhaps the sin of the golden calf, you're not one of the ringleaders who are involved in the sin of the golden calf. You're Israel, you're there, you're kind of on the sideline. Maybe you gave an earring or the calf, maybe you did something else, but you're not one of the ringleaders. And so relatively speaking, your sin isn't so bad. And still at other times, there are those of us who are overwhelmed with our sin, so overwhelmed with it that we cannot imagine that God could endure being with us for another day, especially when we've done sins repetitively for year after year. Exodus 32 through 34, this section of Scripture deals with exactly these issues, How does God deal with sin? How do we understand how God relates to our sin? So Exodus 32 resolved the question of whether or not God would immediately destroy the people en masse. Now hanging in the balance is the critical issue of Exodus, the one that is central in the book of Exodus, namely, will God dwell with his people? Is his home their home, their home his home, or not? Are we restoring that which the original fall created, namely a separation from God, namely the removal of the presence of God, namely the removal of holy ground and the reestablishment of holy ground? Are we reversing it, or is it going to continue? Now, instead of trying to outline the passage today thematically, the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to work through this text exactly as it is presented, and I'm going to use the headings that are probably in your Bible. If if you have your uh, Bible open, you'll see some headings that are there, and I'm basically 
going to use those sections. They're not, I don't think they're in the bulletin, but in any case, it won't be very complex as we wor work through it. So first of all, I want to look at the section in verses 1 through 7. You read this, and you just heard it read to you, you've read it before, or if you look at these passages, you, you look at verses 1 through 2 and the beginning of 3, and you might think initially that things sound pretty good. This sounds like a recap of the promises that God has made. Namely, you're going to go up into this land that I have promised to give the patriarchs. I'm going to take care of the enemies who are in the land. And it is, as verse 3 begins, a land flowing with milk and with honey. That all sounds initially to us perhaps pretty good. It sounds like things we've heard other places in Exodus and frankly in other places in Genesis as well. But God lowers the boom in the second half of verse 3 when he says, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff-necked people. Apart from annihilation, which has been held back but is now once again threatened, i.e. if I go with you, I'll kill you, I'll wipe you out, Apart from annihilation, this is the worst possible news that Israel could hear from God at this juncture. When we, when we read this, when, so when you read that section of, of verse 3, I'm not going with you, you've got to go back up to verses 1 and 2 and go, did I miss something? It sounded good there. Did I miss something along the way here that might have given me a clue? And when you, when you realize that, you, you say, indeed, indeed, it looks exactly like I missed something. Because at first glance, you might think this sounds like a commissioning, a sending off. You know, this is what I brought you here for, to have my presence, and now I'm sending you along the way. But rather, I agree with some other commentators who look at this and say, this is no commissioning with my presence now to guide you. It is, in fact, a decommissioning. And I'm not going to go with you to this place. In other words, what you've got here is essentially a parallel to what took place in Genesis chapter 3. So we have tried, or I've tried throughout the, the, the story of Exodus, to show us the parallels that exist in the first place between the throne room of God in heaven and then three iterations of that earthly throne room. Iteration number one is the Garden of Eden. Iteration number two is Mount Sinai, where God is meeting with his people. And iteration three will be the tabernacle. Now, in Genesis chapter 3, they were cast out from the presence of the Lord. And the same idea seems to take place here as well. Depart out of my presence. Leave Sinai. Leave Horeb. Leave the place where I am meeting with you right now. Go ahead and go. And notice the phraseology that is used here in these first couple of verses as well. Go, you, and not my people, you and the people. We've switched language once again. And not who I brought up out of Egypt with my outstretched hand, but rather who you brought up out of Egypt. Moses tried to resolve that in the first intercession that he did. He tried to reverse that. 
But here God goes back to it. They're your people. They came up. They're the people. They're not my people. And an angel is sent with them. Now, again, we think, well, that's good. It's good to have one of God's angels leading us into this place. And we rejoiced in the presence of that angel when we first heard of it back in chapter 23. Because in chapter 23, that angel was closely identified with the very presence of God himself. In fact, it was hard to tell the difference between the angel and God himself. But here, clearly, there is a distance that is set up with that angel. That angel has become a depersonalized guide. That angel has become, in effect, a GPS. It'll take you where you need to go, but it could care less whether or not you get there. It has no intimate personal relationship with you. The character even of the angel has changed. God is distant. I'll cut you a check. I'll get you a place to live. I'll send someone to take you there. I'll get you set up in a place. But I am no longer yours. And what this means, as many have pointed out, is that you are no longer my special treasure. You're no longer a royal priesthood. You are no longer a holy nation unto me. There's no covenant. There's no ark. There are no altars. The Ten Commandments are broken right? And there will be no tabernacle. I'm not going with you. And if God is not going with them, you don't build a tabernacle. His presence will not be there. Why? Because you're stiff-necked. An image of a hard neck, an ox who will not be guided, will not be guided by the ropes or the harness that guides him, will not be guided by the goad but wants to stick to his own will. You are a stiff-necked people. You will not do what I tell you to do. You will not go where I tell you to go. You have sinned. You've been sinning, and you'll sin again. And I might destroy you. If I go with you, as the text says, even for a single moment, to emphasize just how dangerous it would be if I were with you for a single moment. I might destroy you. It is, as it is recorded, as it is said for us in verse 4, a disastrous word. It's the worst possible news. God can't say anything to them that would be worse than this. Now lay this just for a second onto your own life and think about the sins that you have done against the Lord time after time after time and feel the weight of God saying with you, if I were to be with you, I just might destroy you. If I were with you for a moment, you who keep turning back to your own sin, I just might wipe you out. Now, I know this comes as a surprise, given all that we've said and read thus far, but Israel got something right in this little section of Scripture, 1 to 7 here. 
Namely, what they got right is it seems that from their hearts and from the direction that God gave to them through Moses, they mourned and they gave a tangible expression to that mourning as they removed their ornamentation, as they took off their jewelry. This indicates at least some level to us of recognition of that which they had done and some expressed desire to do something about it. Now, we could quickly read by that ornamentation, but but just real quickly, remember how significant that has been along the way in Exodus. So it was the booty, the plunder that God had given to them as they were leaving out of Egypt. And it would be the very stuff that they used to build the tabernacle. In the meantime, it had become some of the stuff that they had used to build the golden calf. Remember, that's what Aaron said, take off the stuff that you're wearing. Now, apparently they had a lot of stuff to wear because there's various points where they're taking it off, they're putting it on, they're giving it back and forth. It was a large plunder that they had taken with them. So they take it off as an expression of, and we'll use the biblical word here, of their repentance. And this is part, thinking about it for us, of how we know that God is at work within us. When we mourn the offense of our sin against God, then we begin to get a sense that God is indeed and perhaps at work within us. Note, there are other things that can happen with sin. We can be upset that we let ourselves down, that we let other people down. We might be upset because we hurt someone else with the sin that we committed. We might be upset that we got caught. But when you begin to get a sense of your offense against God, then it is indicative of the work of God in our hearts. Now, while this situation appears to be beyond hope, God has declared, I am not going with you. There is the tiniest sliver of possibility that is presented to us, I think, unexpectedly, surprisingly, at the end of verse 5. Take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Now, if I'm listening to that, I I say, wait a minute. I thought you already knew what to do with us. In fact, I thought you already said what you were going to do with us. Namely, you're not going to go up because we're stiff-necked people. Are you saying to me that I may know what to do with you, that the jury's still out, that the verdict is not given yet? Is there a possibility that this could get turned around, this decision that was apparently made? Now, with this phrase, I need to go back to something from last week. And, and that is this question. How can an omniscient Yahweh need time to think it over? I mean, we get that we sometimes need time to think it over, right? To know what action we will take given a possibility that might or might not happen. But how can God need time to consider what he is going to do? Take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Why can't he just commit himself to not destroying them? 
He knows they're going to sin. They probably know they're going to sin. We certainly know that they are going to sin again. Just commit yourself to it. Don't destroy them along the way. Well, here's a hint. God knows. But here in this passage, both God and Moses, our writer, are willing to risk a misunderstanding of God, a humanizing of God. They're willing to risk allowing the readers, the Israelites, to think that God thinks like they do, that he debates and considers things the way they do, for the sake of that which follows. Rivard Childs notes this, great commentator on Exodus. A risk of a misunderstanding of God in order to emphasize the importance of what follows, which takes us then to verses 7 through 11 in the passage. This passage, this section here, 7 through 11, is great because it is wonderful to read how angry commentators get to find it right in this section right here. I mean, literally, commentators are like, what is this doing here? How does this fit with the rest of the story? Stylistically, it is different than that which has come before. Our narrative has been interrupted by what appears to us to be a parenthesis added. Sequentially, we're not exactly sure what it is describing. When did this happen? When did this outside-the-camp tent meeting take place? Was it something that regularly took place after they had left Egypt? Was it something that started taking place a little while later? Did it just happen now for the first couple times after Moses had come down? And we're kind of puzzled. When did this take place? So stylistically, narratively, and sequentially, it frustrates that it is in this particular section. But thematically, thematically, it is the key to understanding what takes place in this passage, what takes place with Moses and with God. It is not an overstatement to say that the fate of Israel hangs on the friendship between God and Moses. Verse 11 is the key. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Now there's something there about the physicality of God that's going to be a question mark for us. I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to hold that in abeyance till next week when we'll, we'll deal with that a little bit when Moses asks to see the glory of God a little bit later in this chapter. So hold that in abeyance for just a moment. spoke with him face to face as a man speaks with his friend. We've used the biblical word, a a good word, mediator, to describe the work that Moses does as he intercedes between the people and God. Now, when we hear that word in our cultural context, mediator or mediation or perhaps arbitrator and arbitration, we, I, I don't know, perhaps... At least for me, when I think of that term, when I think of that process, I often think of lawyers. I think of an impersonal situation, unbiased people negotiating contracts or treaties, settling perhaps 
a divorce situation. They're impartial, and it is a formal process that takes place. At least that's what comes to my mind when I think of mediation. Moses is anything but impersonal and impartial. He is neither. He is, in fact, a well-placed friend. Now, how would you feel if you were in a mediation situation and the mediator or the arbitrator was one of your best friends? I suspect you'd feel pretty good. Moses will say a lot. He will do a lot of work trying to reconcile these two seemingly irreconcilable parties. But we dare not lose sight of the friendship that makes that conversation, that dialogue, even possible. That's why this section is put right here. To say that in the midst of everything else, God had a special relationship with this man. It was outside the camp. It wasn't inside the camp like the tabernacle would be. This is, if you will, a proto-tabernacle that is set outside the camp where Moses would go and inquire of the Lord on behalf of the people. This is not a contract dispute between God and the people. It is a covenant, and it is deeply personal. It's not about legalities, it's about love. In verses then 12 through 17, Moses leverages the friendship. I hate that word, leverage. I use it just for the irony of it. He doesn't leverage the friendship. But he banks on this relationship. He counts on this relationship. This just came to mind. But remember, in the same exact way that Paul can write to Philemon about Onesimus, and he says, I know I can count on your friendship. I'm going I'm to write something here. I'm going to ask you to do something, but I don't need to command you. I don't even need to ask you because I can count on the friendship that we have together. Well, Moses puts it in here, and he's going to count on this friendship that he has with God. God is all in, and Moses is all in. Forgive me, I used a poker analogy a while back, and I'm going to use a poker analogy again today. I don't play poker. God has already shown his hand in this scenario here. There are rebellious, stiff-necked people that I might just consume. That's my hand. I don't want them. You take them. Moses shows his hand. In uh, chapter 32, he turned over several cards. He turned over the cards and said, God, they're your people. And he turned over the next card and said, don't lose your fame amongst the nations. And he turned over the next card, which is the promises that have been made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Don't forget those. There's three of my cards right there on the table for you. Moses here turns over his whole card. Hint, God already knew the card. Moses says, you know my name. You know my name. Biblically speaking, you love me. 
You know my name. You have shown me favor. You have shown me grace. You have set it upon me. I want to know more of you. And I want them with me. And I want you with us. Verses 13 through 16 are brilliant. They're a brilliant piece of intercession. They're a brilliant piece of writing in the way that they wind over one another. The way Moses is switching pronouns between I and we. It's all about I in the first part of 13. Until the end, he kind of slips in. Consider, too, that this nation's your people. You say they're thus just the people or my people. Consider that they're your people. Verse 14. Or fifth, let me go to 15. That's God's response in 14. Verse 15. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people who are there? He just keeps throwing it back, throwing it back one more time. It's not enough for me. That is not enough. I want them. And God, and forgive me while I press this analogy just a little bit further, pushes back from the table and as a father delights in his son when his son just won a game of chess. Sometimes I delighted in that and sometimes I didn't. As a father delights in his son when the son beats him at basketball, or it's something else, whatever it is, the thing that they do together. So God pushes back and seems to say, well played, Moses. You win. I will be with you, plural. I will be with you and with them. For you, I will be with them. Moses wins. Hint, God wins. Hint, Israel wins. Hint, we win. Emmanuel will come. God with us will happen with us because of intercession. Now, brothers and sisters, do you see Jesus? There is one reason and one reason only why you and I have a down payment on the presence of God through the indwelling Spirit in our hearts now. There is one reason why repeat offenders, recidivists like us, have the hope of eternity in the brightness of the presence of God. 
Parentheses. Should we mourn our sins? Absolutely. Should we bring forth deeds in keeping with repentance? Absolutely. Should we seek after obedience to God? Absolutely. But that said, and parentheses, the one reason that we have hope in delighting in the presence of God, the one reason is that we have a really well-placed friend. One who is in exactly the right position. Jesus calls those who believe in him, who seek after obedience to him, his friends. You are my friends. A man will lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus himself is no mere friend of Yahweh. He is the beloved Son who from all eternity dwelt in the presence of his Father, not in some tent outside the camp where God would come in a cloud. He is the Son who was always there at the right hand of his Father and with him, with this Son, Yahweh is well-pleased. And the Son pleads for us based on the Father's love for him. Got it? Moses pled for the people of Israel based on God's love for him, God's friendship with him. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, pleads for you, pleads for me, based on the fact that God's always loved him. God, you love me. Father, you love me. I love them. Package deal. I want them with me. I want them with us. John 17, the high priestly prayer. Now let's be clear. God doesn't play poker. There is no uncertainty in the mind of God in the counsels of eternity about God's plans for the future. God does not change his mind. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said it, and will he not do it? Has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Numbers 23. But it is this anthropomorphism, this risking our misapprehension of God that is allowed to be put before us by God, by Moses, for the sake of us seeing the necessity of the work of a mediator. In other words, there's no stopping. There's no one sentence. I forgive you. God is sovereign over all things. Those are good lines for us in difficult times. I forgive you. God is sovereign over all times. But here, but here, God is willing to... to, to, if you will, just for a moment, let us put aside the fact that I am sovereign, I am, and I want you to see what a mediator does and what a mediator has done for you because that's what my son has done and it made a difference. God allows Moses to be the effective mediator so that Israel, so that Moses himself, so that we can see the efficacy 
the sufficiency, the success, and the beauty of Jesus, our friend who has turned away the wrath of God and secured our ability to be in the presence of his Father. I have no to-do list for you today. To-do lists sometimes happen. Except for this. Own him and love him as your Lord and as your friend. Let's pray.